since we've been on the air, and again, uh, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to uh, continuing our show for the rest of the year into the new year, and uh, this morning is a very special morning uh, indeed that we have invited again a, um, a brother who has been on our show numerous times in the past, and it's a pleasure to have him with us again. Uh, Dr. Chris Saltpaul, and I know that those of you who have uh, tuned in in the previous shows and heard his um, uh, interviews and information that he has shared with us have been uh, greatly rewarded with education in terms of health and uh, higher self-awareness. But before I go any further, I'd like to just share a little bit about myself and the show. Uh, Grassroots Holistic Health was created to discuss global healing on all levels of existence, which encompass mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Um, the host, myself, Barbara Wesley Gray, I happen to be an ordained interfaith minister, an empowerment coach, certified Reiki practitioner, and a musician, both African and jazz uh, percussion. I'm also married and I live in New York City and I've been a vegetarian for uh, approximately 26 years and I'm currently uh, training for my 14th New York City Marathon. Um, and also I must add that our focus is to foster respect on all religions and principles that honor marriage, family, children, elders, and our ancestors also to encourage the elimination of vulgarity and lower self-interaction with each other and to create leadership within ourselves that promote service to each other with the highest of integrity, and also to provide information regarding various healing and medicinal remedies for all illnesses and to provide information for a proactive lifestyle that offers preventive health practices. With that uh, being said, I'd like to share with you some information regarding our guest, Dr. Christopher Saltball. Uh, Dr. Christopher received his Bachelor of Science in Material Science Engineering from Rutgers University and his doctorate on naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University and his master's in acupuncture from the New York College of Traditional Chinese Medicine. He has a lifelong dedication to healing and has worked with patients suffering from many different health conditions such as obesity, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, HIV, AIDS, and cancer. And Dr. Sawpart, he helped find, found rather, a mentoring program for adolescents struggling to become conscious and positive adults. He 
He's also worked for several years in the foster care system with troubled youth and in the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries. He has worked for six years as the director of nutrition at Invite Health Center since opening his own practice in New York City in 2005, Dr. Saul Paul has worked extensively in helping individuals manage their food um, intake, blood pressure, blood sugar with dietary, dietary nutritional practices. Dr. Saul Paul has joined a team of alternative health practitioners at the Peace Health Center in Brooklyn to help combat the growing health crisis in the intercity and particularly the African-American community. He has also completed training in naturopathic cardiology, and he has conducted detoxification programs and managed sliding scale acupuncture clinics and has used acupuncture to help numerous individuals with musculoskeletal pain as a result of traumatic injury and attrition and some inflammatory processes. And in conclusion, Dr. Sopo has received in acupuncture oncology training from the renowned Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And without any further ado, I'd like to bring Dr. Sopor on the air with us. Uh, Dr. Sopor, are you with us, sir? I am. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Pleasure to be here. Great, great. And also, I must uh, include my wife, uh, Dr. Dora Gray, is with us as well. Hello. How are you, honey? I'm doing great. Good morning, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing well, Dora. Good morning to you. Good to hear you. And you. Great. So, uh, Doctor, without any further ado, I'd like to just delve into the area of the topic of discussion this morning, and that being uh, the surge of Ebola within the African region, as well as heart disease. Um, I'd like to start off with a conversation about Ebola. Would you please share with us the history of Ebola and the other similar viruses that have plagued the mother country of Africa and the world as a whole? Yeah, sure. Uh, Let's start with some other diseases that I think that, um, you know, we still hear of today and that are... um, have them plagues or have um, decimated the world. Um, so the first one that comes to my mind is the influenza, obviously. And, um, you know, typically 5,000 people a year die of influenza. Um, the most uh, virulent or the most deadly flu epidemic or pandemic was the 1918 Spanish flu, um, where 40% of the people in the world were actually affected. And, um, between 50, uh, some even estimate up to 100 million people, that's 2 to 3% of the world's population, uh, were killed. And they, and, and they think that the reason why is that 1918, um, it was war, World War One. but this was like the first time where people, you know, actually um, started to travel and go into different regions in large mass. And so it was just the changing of, of uh, this all, um, the, the ability to travel. The second one that comes to my mind is smallpox. And, you know, if you study um, history uh, or um, especially American history, 
you know, that the um, smallpox eradicated about 90% of the indigenous population in Americas. Um, mm. And so this was something that we know that Columbus had introduced into the world, a new world. But worldwide, it killed about uh, one in three people, uh, or 300 million people in total. Um, we also think about things like HIV, right? And so it's the worst in modern history, uh, especially in Africa. Um, and so far since I think 1980, it's killed about 36 million people. And it's still at epidemic levels in Africa. Um, those are viruses. The other ones that I think of off the top of my head is the plague, right? And so this is Yersinia pestis, which is uh, from a rat, and I believe the rat gets bitten by a tick, and the tick bites a human. But the Black Plague, or the Black Death, uh, caused about um, 75 million people, the death of 75 million people worldwide, or one-third to one-half of the population of Europe. Um, and this was, like I believe, in the 1300s, 1347 to 1351. And so, you know, we compare that to what we see um with Ebola, right? And so the first time that Ebola showed up on a scene was, I believe, um, 1976 um, in, in the Congo, or Zaire, as it was called then. Um, and I believe that about 318 people um, were infected with disease. But the, the frightening thing about Ebola is that it kills so many people. So it's got a really high uh, percentage of uh, what they call kill rate, and so it's very virulent. Um, and so 88% of the people wound up dying with the first epidemic, and so it was like 280 people died. And I think that I, I want to step back and, and and talk about that a little bit more, about the virulency. And since then, about 19 different Ebola outbreaks have happened in different areas in Africa and the world, um, the worst being the one that we're currently seeing in the news, where so far I believe like uh, over 5,000 people have died. Um, and so there's a couple of things here. Um, the virulency, it's 88%, 88% of the people who get it, usually 90% around there, um, die. And the reason why we see that is usually because in these parts of the world, the medical infrastructure is decimated. And so... Um, people don't have gloves, or medical medical professionals don't have gloves to handle the patients who are Ebola-infected. Um, there's not the infrastructure. There's no beds there in a lot of these kind of, uh, in, in these African countries um, because they're already dealing with kids who have malnutrition. They're already dealing with, you know, um, people who have malaria. There's not that many medical professionals. And in fact, in the current outbreak, which is in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, I believe that in Liberia, there's the, in the entire country, there's like 41 medical doctors. And in one of the other countries like Guinea, I think that there's like 356 beds. And all of the people are kind of overwhelmed with what's, what's already going on there. It's just like the medical infrastructure is taxed already. And so... Before Ebola even showed up on a scene, it's just like those countries weren't able to handle the health crisis that was there already. And so now you put Ebola on the top of that, and there's no way that these people are going to get any help. This is why you see such high virulency in these parts of the world. 
and so this is why it's a really was a really good policy for other um countries to send supplies and send medical professionals over there and to send help because in a sense of kind of like um you know in in a sense of public health this was a very good policy that if you stopped the spread of Ebola where it was it wouldn't get in other parts of the world and mm-hmm. so i think that there's the, the whole political thing around it which is what we hear in the news a lot especially last week or the last couple of weeks when it was highly politicized uh, right before the midterm elections right and so we talked about it a lot and blamed a lot of it on the current administration and how can this happen and people in New York have it and um and um i think that that really i think that a lot of that fur and a lot of that energy around Ebola and this per- this spread was largely based in fear and it was largely politicized and we don't hear it much in the news now for those very reasons there's no reason to talk about it um because there's not like a big midterm election coming up in my opinion mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. i do think that this is very dangerous but i do see that if you have the proper healthcare infrastructure in place if you have the proper training it can be managed um mm-hmm. and it is a very frightening disease for those and those those people in those parts of the world who don't have help. And so that's why I think it's a really good policy to send medical professionals, send help, send people down who can who can stop it there. And so um and I guess the question was the history of Ebola. And so there's been 19 outbreaks. Again, this is the most virulent. This is the the one that we see most people dying and again, I believe that this has a lot to do with the nature of the healthcare in in those areas and the time it took for medical professionals to get there and um from the outside from outside of Africa to kind of get there and um help to manage that situation and i think it's what we see in africa a lot you know it's kind of like there's a large population of people who aren't helped who aren't being taken care of um and i believe that the outside world outside of Africa needs to come in and aid them and help to build up the medical infrastructure system so that these things don't tend to happen anymore. And mm-hmm. we can get into all of the reasons why Africa is struggling this way and I think a lot of it has to do with being underdeveloped by the countries and being stripped of its resources which may require a whole other program to talk about. But sure. because we're just talking about this, I really believe that this is all part of that. This is all part of Africa being underdeveloped and uh, not developed in certain ways and stripped of its resources um to the point where it has nothing you know and um mm-hmm. just very simple things like you know more people die of malaria will ever die of malaria and malaria is a much bigger problem in Ebola than Ebola um and this is what the preponderance of the medical kind of resources go for in these areas is just managing malaria and managing like um infants who are who are potentially uh going to be dying at birth, right? And so um pregnant women who are giving birth to malnourished infants or who are malnourished themselves because malnourishment is a big part of the picture there too, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you combine all of those factors, of course, when something like Ebola comes up, you have no infrastructure to to kind of treat the situation, but you're already dealing with people who are very sick and who have uh, you know, who have no resources to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that all created kind of like this this perfect storm of events that allowed this to happen. 
and it kind of scared the heck out of people, which is why we talk about it so much here in America. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, the 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 thing that I noted earlier in the conversation about Ebola, Ebola was that uh, the brothers and sisters in Africa and the regions which are being uh, affected by this plague, for the lack of a better term, they exacerbate the uh, spread of Ebola, Ebola by certain practices, such as when a, per- a person in the family is sick or indeed when one dies, that they uh, have rituals of handling the the, uh, the the patient or the deceased by kissing them, and other rituals which uh, this you know exposes them to this uh, deadly disease. And I think yeah. that might be a problem, a frustration, as, as it were, with those who are uh, sent to these various regions of Africa and these various countries in Africa to assist. What is your comment about that? What is your take on that? I mean, I think that that may be truth. I mean, I think that there's there's probably lots of ignorance around um, what to do in this case because really no no one's seen it that much, right? And so mm-hmm. this is why we're all afraid of that doctor who came back from this region getting on the subway and going to Williamsburg and bowling, right? Because, you know, no one really – I mean, I think that there's just this fear around it, and I feel like um, – People, people there really don't know. And I mean, Ebola. You know, you know, you could have someone in your family who comes down with it, and they don't get treated, and they're, you know, vomiting all over the place, and they're, you know, which is what happens in the course of the disease. They could potentially start bleeding out from their orifices and their eyes, and then you have people who don't have medical resources, including family members trying to take care of them, and they get infected because of it. Um, Yes, that can definitely happen. And I think, yes, this is because of, I think, lack of education, but more so I believe it's because of lack of medical resources where, you know, in a a, a situation like that, you have a, a relative who is like that, what you should be able to do is just call someone in, um, to handle the situation, to to you know close the area down, to kind of be able to decontaminate the place, but they don't have those type of resources there. So, so sure, family members are doing what they can to help their loved ones. I think most of us would do that, you know, too, um, and doing and practicing these rituals also. I mean, um, I think that again, it's about the level of ed- education, and again, then it's about the level of resources. What resources you have to deal with someone who's sick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the resources is, is a major problem in terms of getting uh, uh, medication, as well as uh, doctors who are willing to and nurses who are willing to sacrifice their time, and in some cases their life. Uh, to treating these patients. Yeah, and I would have to say, you know, it's it's interesting, the whole point about the kissing, because, you know, um, what that made me think of when you said that is, you know, the, in order to manage these patients, you got to have, like, protective equipment and gloves, you know. Mm-hmm. In the hospitals in these countries, they didn't, have, they didn't even have rubber gloves. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, they would have these patients bleeding out on the floor and vomiting, and they would be handling them with their bare hands because they had no gloves. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I'm talking about. They knew better, but they didn't have the resources to 
you know, where are they going to get? And, and the funny things, not funny, but the, the, the most heartbreaking thing is that, you know, Liberia, which is the country that's suffering from Ebola, um, I believe is the biggest producer in Africa of rubber. And so they can't mm. get rubber gloves. But Firestone wow, is there, which we get our tires from, right? And yes. they're producing rubber in incredibly high volumes, but the doctors, the, the healthcare professionals, can't even get rubber gloves in their own country that produces rubber. And I think wow. that that has, that, that has uh, uh, you know, that has a huge meaning there. And I think that that's part of the problem, you know, is the resources and the reallocation of resources out of Africa mm-hmm. and not back into Africa to actually help with the most basic things, you mm-hmm. know, to the point where Malaysia had to send 20,000, 20 million, actually 20 million sets of gloves to the healthcare professionals there just to deal with this because they didn't even have gloves. Hmm. And with this type of disease where, the, the you know, it's spread by body fluids and you have people bleed, you know, spilling out body fluids who are symptomatic, like pretty much all over the place, not air, to, not, 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 you don't get it in the air, it's about body fluids, right? Mm-hmm. With this with this particular condition, you have to be able to manage that. You have to be able to kind of, you know, have this kind of sort of impenetrable barrier around yourself with rubber and stuff like that, but they didn't have any of that type of stuff there. So that's what the problem was. Mm-hmm. So do, do you feel that there's a move, movement forward in terms of uh, uh, rectifying these issues, um, especially the piece in terms of Liberia with uh, having companies such as Goodyear and other companies that are manufacturing ties and other rubber-based um, uh, products, uh, that seems to be that there should be some type of um, political movement and exposure, conversation. Media needs to cover this. Um, I mean, I, I think that that's the big part of it, right? And, I mean, I think that, you know, when you when we first started, you, you, the first question you asked me was about the history of these kind of conditions. And these things happen in an under, underdeveloped world. They don't happen here because we have the resources, mm-hmm. you know. Um, historically, I mean, especially now, like in 1347 and 500 when it was about the Black Plague, no one had any kind of antibiotics and no one had anything. And mm-hmm. so, and everyone was living like that, even the very wealthy people. And you see that happening in 1347 with the Black Plague. That won't happen now. The same, the same um, bacteria that caused Black Death is still around. People get bubonic plague here, but they get it in the, in the underdeveloped world. They don't get it in America, because mm-hmm. if someone got this Yersinia pestis bacteria, they just take an antibiotic and it gets rid of it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have access to that, then you can't manage it. And so this is a big political thing, and this is a big kind of uh, issue where it's really about getting, getting people the resources and not being all in fear and and uh, that way. And so I don't really know of any kind of conversation that's happened after that, but there definitely should be some kind of debate or some kind of dialogue um, about how to, how to, how to go about helping more in these areas. And see, this is why um, Cuba is so renowned for what it does in the world. In fact, you know, when this whole Ebola thing broke that came down, I think Cuba sent, and, and again, in these types of situations, you know, the Cuban doctors are probably the best. They sent about 40,000 medical professionals down there. America sent like 2,000. 
And it was like this huge outcry in America. Why are we sending all of our doctors over there and they're going to come back and bring us this this stuff that we don't know anything about? Cuba sent 40,000 people over there and they're like, fine, we'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was because mm-hmm. their policy is about, you know, helping other countries and kind of like going into the world and making sure that these areas are secure. Because really in a public health setting, that's where these types of things happen. They don't happen here in America. That's where these types of things happen. In these underdeveloped worlds where people are malnourished, they don't have any medical resources, there's no sanitation, there's pests running around. And if you have no medical professionals there, that's where outbreaks happen, right? And so that's why it's really important for us to be like Cuba, in a sense. We're sending professionals out to manage those situations because, you know, with more and more people traveling, you can have someone going out there getting something and bringing it back to this country. That's how it happens, which is why our borders need to be left open as opposed to locking everything down like people were saying. And we need to send people out there to take care of these things because they don't have it. But more importantly, Africa needs to have, I think, at some point, um, its own ability, its own infrastructure in place where it can handle it. And enough doctors, enough of the medical professionals where it can handle these populations of people. And I think that that is... A, a, a much broader conversation about Africa being allowed to actually have an economy, you know, and so um, and not being underdeveloped by by Europe and America and these places and stripped of its resources and um, in that way. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a large, large, large conversation that needs to happen. You know, one one thing about the uh, aspect of Cuba being so proactive with uh, sending doctors, uh, I didn't know that the percentages were such great numbers uh, coming from Cuba as opposed to uh, the United States and and its allies, so-called allies. But uh, Cuba is part of the African diaspora. So it's encouraging to know that indeed our brothers and sisters in Cuba are uh, embracing uh, and committing themselves to helping brothers and sisters in the motherland. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think that they highly recognize that, you know. Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And I'm also uh, encouraged to and and uh, very interested in the progress that's being made with opening up the uh, the restrictions or alleviating the, the restrictions of immigration or visitation rather from Cuba to the United States and and vice versa. Right. Um, that's encouraging. Um, I'd like to just uh, take a moment to in, invite those of you who are listening, if you'd like to participate in this conversation with Dr. Saltpaw and myself, uh, to call in to 516-590-0140 and press the number one button on your phone and you will be queued in to um, our live show. And those of you in the guest room who would like to um, share any comments and thoughts, please feel free. And um, I look forward to uh, your input. Uh, Dr. Sorpaul, before I continue, I- I'd like for you to share with the listening audience um, information about your profession. Um, indeed, how does your medical profession, profession differ from the Western-oriented medical practice? Sure. Um I, uh, my medical profession, I believe, um, uses um, herbs, nu- nutrients, nutritional supplementation, 
non-pharmaceutical ways to manage a person's um, condition. We also look at um, not just the disease process. We look at kind of like the whole picture more. You know, a few uh, weeks ago I was just telling you, or last actually last weekend I was in a conference, a training, um, a cardiovascular training, and most of the people sitting in a room with me were cardiologists and medical doctors and people who used um, uh, pharmaceuticals like statins and, um, you know, blood pressuring lower medications and things like that. And what I realized was that, um, you know, we all have the same thing in common, I think, is that we really want to help people. Um, but I believe that they are really uh, have their hands tied in some kind of way um, with kind of like these types of liability that I feel like naturopaths have, but we just manage it in like in a different way. And so what I, when I say that, I say that when you're a cardiologist, for instance, you got to worry about someone having a heart attack, and if they do, and you don't have them on any medications, you know, you can be you can, you know that's a lot of risk for you, and you can be sued for malpractice. And so there's this kind of like way that they're they're kind of made to practice in a certain way and i and i get that but what i don't get is that i think with this particular group that i had this conference with a lot of them were really about um trying to get to the underlying cause as best as they could um but i think that naturopaths are really in my profession we do that probably a little bit more we focus on that a little bit more and we focus on doing things um that are less damaging to your body systems um, as, in terms of modalities that we use to treat than pharmaceutical drugs. And uh, the long-term mm-hmm. commitment to be on pharmaceutical drugs usually isn't one that um, leads to health down the, down the line. So you really need to kind of do alternative interventions, um, um, whether it be diet, exercise, um, stress reduction techniques, um, using herbs and other nutrients. And herbs and nutrients do have side effects, but they're not usually to the degree that you see in pharmaceutical drugs. And so um, that's what we do in our, my profession. You know, I, I focus a lot in my, my practice on diet and exercise and getting to the source and focusing on getting people balanced in their lives, whether or not it's stress or having a better relationship and and those types of things. Um, so that's that's where I think the difference is. Uh, great, great input. Uh, you know, I'd like to take a moment. Uh, my wife, Dora, would like to uh, share some thoughts. And uh, hi, hon. Hi. You know, I um, I would like to share some thoughts about what Dr. Saltford just um, said because I am well for a couple of reasons. First of all, I have no stake in this. I like how your show, Baba. We keep it real, and the show is about helping people. Mm-hmm. So being that I'm not a medical doctor, I have no stake in I don't have to worry about being sued. I particularly don't care what anybody thinks about what I say, and I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So I want to mention in line with what Dr. Sopo was just saying, from the standpoint of someone who has been treated with both pharmaceuticals as well as naturopathic methodology. Because, um, you know, as many of you may know, I was diagnosed with diabetes in 2009, and I'm now medicine-free as the result of using naturopathic methods. So this is what I want to speak about from both sides of the coin. When I first was diagnosed with diabetes, 
I went, I, you know, I was rushed to the hospital. My blood sugar had escalated to over 1,000. They said to me, the doctor said to me, I don't even know how you're still here, okay? And um, they treated me with insulin. Now, I have nothing against insulin because I know in my heart that had they not hooked me up to the IV and sent me home with insulin, I would not be here speaking right now. I would have been gone. All right? Mm -hmm. So I have nothing against it. However, when I came home from the hospital and I gave myself my first insulin injection, my right ankle swelled up three times the size of what it normally is. And I knew right then and there that, first of all, I, I wasn't into injecting myself with a needle every day. That, mm -hmm. That's just not for me. That wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. But the reactions that the insulin gave me, um, other other side effects such as I felt like I was losing my mind. It felt like, you know, we're, we're sitting here in one room, but it felt like my body was in another room. Yeah, I, you know, that meta yeah. I know that that's so crazy. And, you know, again, you know, these pharmaceuticals, I think they're important because for many people like myself, it saved my life. But that day, I knew that there was no way that this was something that I was supposed to be administering to myself for the rest of my life. That's where I drew the line, you know, because pharmaceuticals, there's a place for them. But you can't live like that. Right. And when I started talking with other people, um, I would meet, um, I don't, you, well, we know that everything is energy. Mm -hmm. So when I became um, diagnosed with diabetes, all of a sudden, I start meeting other people who are diabetic, like out of the blue, law of attraction. That's mm -hmm. just the way energy works. Right. And um, one young man that I met in particular who was very overweight, and he told me he was about to quit his job because he just couldn't take it anymore because of the, um, the insulin. And he said that he never used to be overweight like that until he started using insulin. Mm -hmm. And I remember engaging with this young man. He was a stranger. I didn't, you know, again, you... Everything is energy, but this law of attraction, like meeting like, you just tend to, people that have your same quote-unquote condition, mm -hmm. they come out of the woodwork, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I told him, and, and when I met this young man, I was already off the, the prescription medication at that point in time, and I told him what I was doing. And uh, he said he was going to try it. I never heard from him again, but he did say that he was going to go the naturopathic way. And, you know, he was such a nice young man. He told me he had gotten married recently, and uh, he said just traveling back and forth to work and having to administer the insulin to himself during the day. He, he said he just couldn't stand it, and he really was grossly overweight. So I can understand that. Because um, at this point, I've personally lost over 45 pounds. Right. And, uh, Share with the yes. transition audience how you met Dr. Sofor. Okay. So I'll, you know, I'll get to that. But I just wanted to mm -hmm. emphasize that you know, I have nothing against pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. but I know that you keep taking them, they'll kill you. Mm -hmm. Okay? I don't believe they're designed to cure you. I honestly don't believe that. Right. And the side effects aren't worth the trouble. Now that I'm no longer on medication, I am doing the diet and exercise according to the plan that Dr. Saltpour had given me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I feel fine, and it's, it's amazing because now 
Like, I'm 58 years old now, and I feel better than I did when I was in my 30s. And the girls at my job, they can't keep up with me. They're always like, Mr. Craig, what are you doing? And I tell them what I do. I'm, I'm spreading this. I'm sharing it because people need to know. Absolutely. And it's just that simple. Mm -hmm. And anybody that gets mad at me for telling the truth, I honestly don't care. I'm out here right. trying to save lives in my own way. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm out here really assisting people with this. Um, the women at my job now, instead of the sodas, they're starting to travel with bottles of water, you know, that type of thing. And it's important mm -hmm. because we don't know. I didn't grow up in a household where we talked about health or, you know, it just wasn't like that. And many people are like that. We just didn't know. And when you know better, you do better. And I think it's important to share with other people because the masses don't know because if they did, they wouldn't be running to the doctor getting these pills and everything all the time. Seriously? Okay? But to answer your question, the way I met Dr. Saul, well, I believe that's through the law of attraction also. Absolutely. However, the funny story, and I don't even know if I told you about this before, Chris, but I met you years ago, and when I met you as far as um, – coming to you for treatment for diabetes, at that time, it wasn't in my mind, but I met you at a venue at Halsey Street years ago. And after you treated me, I was like, wait a minute, I know this man. And I was telling my <laughs> husband at the, um, at the center at Halsey Street. Yes, and I yes, was invited yes, uh -huh. there. Uh, I was invited there by um, a group that I was dealing with. And they said, oh, we're going to go over here and visit, and there's a lecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe at that time I even spoke to you, Chris, about obesity because I was overweight at that time. And then to fast forward... After you, it was like sometime after you treated me, and I said to my husband, I think I met him before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the time that my husband is referring to is I met you indirectly through, again, law of attraction um, from Dr. Maladoma Patrice Somay. He was a house guest at our home, and uh, he had one of his clients that came to visit him. And I think my husband had asked about, I, the client was a naturopath who I believe is one of your colleagues from Bastyr University, if I remember right. correctly. Right. I was so sick at that time, I don't remember, because mm -hmm. my mind wasn't totally, you know, because I was home for a month that time, you know, through my illness. And I don't remember all the details, but one thing led to another. And his and, name was Chris. And his name is also Chris. And... Um, he referred us to you because I think he doesn't practice here or something like that. I think he was visiting, and we, we needed someone locally, and he referred us to you. And that's how I met you for the second time. And then months <laughs> later, I realized I had met you before. <laughs> so that's my story. I hope I didn't take up too much time. No, no, absolutely. no that was beautiful, Dory. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Yes, honey. Thank you so much. Uh, indeed. Each one, reach one, teach one, right? That's right. <laughs> you, know, you never know uh, who you're affecting and exponentially how one will share the information that you share to another, to 10, to 100, to 1,000, to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, can benefit just from this show and other shows like this and other people who are having the same type of conversation. 
So, uh, again, I want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sopkoff, for sharing your knowledge and wisdom and expertise within the area of healing uh, through naturopathic methods. Um, another question that comes to mind is uh, getting back to the uh, conversation around Ebola. How, uh, or should I say, what precautions can one take to decrease the possibilities of becoming infected with Ebola? Okay. Uh, could you share that with us? Sure. So uh, if you travel um, to or from any of the um, the countries where you would have an outbreak, um, you want to make sure that obviously you're, you're practicing careful hygiene. For example, you want to make sure that you're washing your hands with soap and water or um, you're using like an alcohol-based hand, hand sanitizer. Um, and you want to make sure that you're obviously avoiding contact with body fluids, uh, blood and body fluids. Um, so you also don't want to handle items that have been contaminated or infected with a person's blood, such as, um, you know, cloths, needles, bedding, medical equipment. You, Like you had mentioned before, you want to avoid funeral or burial rituals that require, like, the handling of a body of someone who died of Ebola or a suspected disease. Um, and you want to avoid contact with um, bats and uh, non-human primates. Um, because they believe that that's the initial kind of um, route, this kind of like um, across species kind of um, transmission of a disease. They believe it could come from like a primate or a bat, and then it um, goes within the human population um, across a species. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so um, you want to make sure that you're staying away from those animals or animals that could potentially be affected by by this disease. Um and stay away from raw meat because I think that there's some case reports that um, that uh, meat's been contaminated with it, and I don't believe that they're really quite certain, and that that could have uh, caused the spread to some folks. Um, and so, you know, obviously you want to um, you just avoid or stay away from folks who are seemingly really sick, um, and just stay away from body fluids. But, you know, the the uh, the thing is here that I think that there's a lot of um, concern with it being um, able to be spread um, like just the common cold, like through the air, and it's not. There's no evidence that that's the case. Um, and so we just really have to kind of um, watch out for being too much of an alarmist with this type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that alarmist, Reminds me of um, I think it was back in 1981, 82, when uh, HIV/AIDS came uh, into the the mainstream of uh, uh, awareness, and people were very paranoid uh, because of ignorance in terms of how one could become infected. And there seems to be a similar type of uh, scenario with uh, Ebola in terms of the bodily fluids and. Uh, and the things of that nature in terms of how one becomes infected. Uh, I know at one time when I was exposed to, uh, the, to through Islam and other religions, uh, bhakti yoga, and uh, I imagine there are other practices which uh, promote and encourage that one uses your left hand 
to handle anything that is uh, not clean. Uh, even going to the bathroom, that you use your left hand as, as such, and your right hand should be used for eating. And that practice, it was had a very practical uh, implication in terms of living in countries where you didn't have the soap or disinfectant uh, uh, agents, as it were, to wash your hands and wipe your hands off. So uh, that's something that people might want to consider incorporating in your lifestyle in terms of using your left hand only for things that are considered to be unclean, uh, potentially infected with uh, a germ, whether it be uh, cold or influenza, flu or whatever, and then your right hand to be used for um, things that are considered to be clean and uh, uninfected. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that that will definitely create an awareness about what you're doing with your hands in general, right? And so I think that that's what part of the point is, too, is that, you know, um, people just need to be aware that, you know, for instance, um, direct contact of broken skin and mucous membranes, eyes and nose, you know, you're rubbing your eyes, your nose, or someone else's eyes and nose, and, um, you know, sweat, saliva, feces, vomiting, um you know, um, even semen and breast milk, all of these things on your hands or in your orifices or other parts of your bodies could potentially cause those issues. And so I do believe that that's a practice that can help to create an awareness around what you're doing with your hands or what's, you know, what's in your proximity that can make you um, unhealthy. And so that is that does serve as a good reminder for that, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so uh, also I wanted to know what type of diet should one have to enhance one's immune system? Uh, and, and relating to diet, uh, Dora would like to ask a question um, relating to that, in that area. Sure. First, I was curious, without, without um, I don't really want to get too controversial, but as far as GMOs, genetically modified organisms, I know in our household we're trying to eat organic, and we're aware of um, we're aware of the so many discussions and news reports about GMOs. Would you say that eating organic could also assist us in warding off, you know, Ebola as well as any other type of diseases? Because it's such a big uh, discussion of the day now. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, that one, I, I say yes. Um, I don't know if there's any evidence of that because, you know, now, now we're in this age where everyone needs to study to say something. Um, that just seems to be kind of pretty logical um, to me. I think that if you do eat food that's more nutrient-dense, which organic has proven to be, um, that is more healthy, that is grown under better con- uh, conditions, Um that, you know, obviously you're going to be getting more nutrients, more protective benefits of the antioxidants that are in those fruits and vegetables that are organic. Um, So absolutely, yes. And I believe that there is still this whole hotly debated topic about GMOs where you have some people in one camp who, you know, aren't looking at the evidence that we do have that GMOs could be damaging us. Um, And they're saying, well, it's it's completely fine to do and there's no... um, no issue with it at all. Um, I don't tend to agree with that. I tend to say let's just stick to organics, and that's the way I teach. That's what I tell people to do in my practice. 
So yes, to that question, I, I do think that eating a more organic diet, non-GMO diet, will help you to have a healthier immune system so you can fight whatever kind of infection you're going to fight. But in general, to answer the first question uh, was about optimizing your diet, I would definitely say you want to eat clean, fresh, and organic. Absolutely. You want to avoid processed sugars, um, starchy foods, greasy foods, processed foods, and alcohol. Um, So processed sugars, and like we're talking about, you know, donuts and candy and uh, stuff that you guys don't even let in your house, I know, you know. Um, You know, and you got to stay away from those because they directly suppress your immune system, right? And so we're talking about having a healthy immune system. We know that we have to stay away from those types of foods. Starchy foods can be starchy fruits and vegetables, but particularly with someone who's having, who has blood sugar issues, you definitely want to stay away from as much starchy like white potatoes, white rice, um, things like that as as possible. Greasy foods, so foods high in the bad types of fats, rancid fats, or um, um, fats that have been um, oxidized and, uh, you know, it's like trans fats and these types of things. Those foods you definitely want to stay away from because in addition to um, in addition to um, weakening your immune system, they also kind of clog your arteries and do a lot of other damaging things. Processed foods with all the chemicals in them, obviously, and uh, and alcohol. And so we definitely want to stay away from consuming a lot of that. You know, you want to make sure that you keep hydrated. You want to make sure that you're eating lots of organic, leafy greens, fruits, and vegetables, you know, because there, there you get all of the antioxidants and vitamins and minerals. And... Um, you're eating nutrient-dense foods because they are organic and they're going to help to support your immune system. So in the end, yes, uh, a diet is really, really important in optimizing your health. And this is what we're talking about back to Ebola in Africa, where if you have a population of people who are already malnourished, um, they have no health care, you know, um, a, 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 the health care infrastructure is falling to pieces, they're malnourished, there's no food to eat there. Don't you think that they're going to get sick more readily, especially when they're around, you know, you know, especially when there's this very virulent disease? Of course they are. You know, what they need to have is proper nutrition. And I mm-hmm. believe that the incidence that you see, the virility, like the 88%, 90% kill rate, will decrease, you know, uh, by huge, maybe maybe reduce in half, or, or maybe the kill rate will go down to like 10 15%, which is what you see like maybe in – you would probably see in, like, some of these other conditions. Um, so, yeah, obviously, you know, we see that right in Africa. There's the perfect example how nutrient nutrition, and in this population of people who are generally malnourished, and how Ebola is just ravaging them. So diet is absolutely important. The odds are stacked against them so incredibly. Exactly. You know, they are, you know, they're malnourished. Yes. Well, thanks. That's that's a profound uh, statement, and thanks for that input regarding diet. Uh, again, those of us who live here in the United States who are not cognizant of of the type of diet that they should have, because we're so oriented towards uh, being a meat-based uh, society in terms of consumption, to say nothing about how it's exacerbated by the fast food industry. So uh, there's a lot to be said about that. 
Can I, can I also mention something before we uh, change the topic with um, interventions? Because I think sure. that there's some things that I feel like just a healthy immune system, um, a little protocol that a friend of mine, or not a friend, a colleague of mine had developed um, for viral infections and things like this, not necessarily for Ebola. A vitamin D is essential for people to take, especially if uh, um, you are vitamin D deficient. You want to take like five to 10,000 IUs probably. You want to make, take some vitamin C, um, about three to six grams. Vitamin A would be really good to do, especially if you are, if you do have a, some kind of viral infection, um, and not just if you're trying to prevent one. Um, something that's really good, I find, for viral infections is black elderberry. Um, there's been actually been a study, funny enough, um, from, uh, for melatonin and Ebola, and they find that in this study that it could potentially be something that helps. So melatonin, 20 milligrams at night, um, it could cause some sleepiness, but they say they theorize that it could potentially help with Ebola. And it's, I think it's one of the only studies of a natural supplement um, with the Ebola virus. Um, um, ionic silver, so, um, you know, like the, uh, the the silver that you get, uh, liquid silver, I think is really, really helpful for viral infections. And so those are some things that I would recommend that folks do if they if they uh if they need some kind of quick antiviral protocol and their uh you know MD meds aren't aren't working. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um Chris, would you tell me if any okay you you quoted vitamin D, um vitamin C, vitamin A? Yes. And um I'm just curious are there any long-term side effects? Like, how how long can we use these? Yes, there are long, long-term side effects, especially the vitamin A. Uh, vitamin A tends to be uh, liver toxic, right? And so you don't want to use that one for a long, long, long time. Um, I would definitely say that if you're doing, like, high-dose vitamin A, um, and, like, 30,000 I use three times a day is a pretty pretty high dose. And so you don't want to do that for more than a couple of weeks. Um, vitamin D, you can probably take that one at 5,000 IUs a day for a while. And, you know, to, to be precise about that, I would, I would look at vitamin D levels and just make sure I'm checking that and that you're doing the right form D3, not D2, um, and that you're checking your vitamin D levels uh, regularly so that you don't become toxic because these things definitely can uh, make you toxic. Typically, vitamin C, you can take about as much as that as you can take, and it won't make you toxic typically. Um, and you, what they say is you take it to bowel tolerance, and so what that means is that um, you take it until your bowels begin to get loose and you know you've, you've taken enough. Um, so it's kind of like that. And so, um, you know, th- those are ways in, with vitamin C that you can kind of tell that you're taking a bit much. And so... Absolutely, that's a good question. And that, you know, when when, uh, you are taking these things, just be aware that you could take too much and that there are side effects to everything, I believe. Oh, okay. So just about two weeks for the vitamin A. Yes, especially if you're going to take it at a high dose, you know. Like 30,000 I use, just, you know, after a couple of weeks, just let it go. Well, uh, you know, it it will be a little bit more. So 30,000 I use three times a day in acute viral infections, I think, is, is a good 
a good way to, to go about doing it. But you definitely want to not do that long-term. That is not a good long-term strategy to do, you know, especially like in pregnant women, you don't want to do that. Oh, okay. And as as far as the vitamin C goes, I don't take vitamin C because I haven't found one that doesn't bother my stomach. Is there one that you could suggest that doesn't give you that stomach reaction? Have you ever tried like a buffered vitamin C? Um, I don't know. Probably not. I'm not really that familiar with the yeah, different... Yeah, I mean, I would look for like a buffered vitamin C to begin with. And there's one that's... Uh, um, I guess a lot of places make it, and there's a brand out that used to call itself Ester C, um, and uh, a buffered vitamin C would be something a little bit different. But I think that, like, those types of vitamin Cs you can try, um, you know, the, the more absorbable ones. And so I believe that there's a bunch of different manufacturers that, you know, claim that they've got better forms of vitamin C that actually get into your system and don't affect their digestion. So, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Great. We have another question regarding um, your profession, and that is acupuncture and Ebola. Mm -hmm. uh, how can that help if it can at all? So I think that that's a great, great, great question. So here's the thing. Um, I think that preventatively it can help. Um, I don't believe that the risk of doing acupuncture on someone with Ebola would be uh i don't i don't i wouldn't do it because i believe that it would just be too risky and here's the reason why um sometimes or for 50 percent of the people infected with ebola and so if you have an infected ebola patient um and you know that they they are they are full-blown ebola part of what the issue is with ebola is that they're not clotting their blood right and so you stick a needle in them they're going to be bleeding you can mm. probably all over the place, and you'll see this in about 50% of the people with Ebola, probably more, that they're just not going to clot their blood. So would I risk that, like sticking a needle in them and having them bleeding all over the place um, because they don't have the ability to clot their blood and they don't have the ability to stop themselves from bleeding? And when they get up from your acupuncture table, they're going to be bleeding all over the place? That's not good. So no. I, I don't believe that that's something that I would personally do, although, you know, um, I know that there are probably people out there who would do that. I just I just wouldn't recommend doing that because of the nature of the condition. But mm -hmm. I think preventatively, um, preventatively, uh, I think that if you're in a region where people are malnourished, where they don't have, you know, good sanitation, where they obviously have stresses in life, um, I think acupuncture can work wonders in helping to just optimize people's health, along with other things, you know. So I do think preventatively it can help to strengthen the immune system a bit, but I would I would not do it on someone who has a condition like Ebola, because just like I said, if they've actually got full blown Ebola, part of part of what happens to a person with Ebola is they just can't clot, and so sticking a needle in them is not the best strategy. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so um, my next question actually segues into your practice in terms of the type of services that you provide. We just spoke about acupuncture, but could you give uh, the listening audience a uh, overall uh, input in terms of your, your services and what you provide? Sure. Um, so I'm a naturopathic doctor and a licensed acupuncturist. Um, I see a lot of people, men and women, who have 
cardiovascular issues, heart disease, um, who have risks of heart disease, meaning they're smokers, they're drinkers, they're overweight, they may be have you know developing um, girth around the midsection, um, erectile dysfunction in men, chest pain, um, sleep apnea, difficulty sleeping at night. So I see a lot of blood sugar issues, for instance, people who have been to the doctor and their blood sugar is starting to increase, and the doctor saying, well, maybe, you know, you need to start doing something b- with your diet and start exercising a little more, bit more before I put you on metformin. I see a lot of people like that, and I see that that was the bulk of my practice. And typically these are people, men and women, all different races, um, usually over, or all different ethnicities, I should say, usually over like 30 years old. And so I tend to see a lot of people who are just kind of like at that cusp of, of um, you know, they're, they're getting a little older and they're trying to manage their health and they're trying to stay healthy and they're, they're faced with some um, potential conditions, whether or not they have it in their family history or if it's in their direct medical history, like they haven't been healthy until that point. And so we do things for them like focusing more on diet and exercise, Um acupuncture, nutritional supplementation, um, using herbs, using energy techniques. For instance, if, uh, if a person has um, got a lot of stress or if a person has uh, got a lot of anger that causes mm-hmm. them stress, we tend to do some energy work. Like you do Reiki, I do cranial sacral therapy and acupuncture. That can kind of like help get those things moving, those stuck emotions moving. And so I do a lot of work around that. You know, I've also seen people who have um, gastrointestinal issues, and this is the heart of naturopathic medicine, is that, you know, um, most things can be treated if you treat the gut, right? And so, obviously, when you're doing this type of medicine, you got to be good at treating the gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we, we see a lot of people, or I see a lot of people who just have complaints with bad digestion, you know, they eat something they don't feel well after, or they have stomach pain, or they have lots of gas and bloating, or... They've got IBS, they're diagnosed with IBS or SIBO or IBD or one of these kind of conditions, you know, and or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and I see a lot of folks who have those kinds of issues. And um, I, uh, you know, just basically focus on, um, again, um, balancing out their bodies with um, proper foods, and a lot of times with um, gastrointestinal complaints, you got to get not just put them on a healthy diet, you got to put them on the right combination of foods because they maybe you got to figure out if they're reacting to something or not. And so um, that's a, a large part of what I do mm-hmm. in my practice. The, the, the gastrointestinal uh, aspect is something that brings to mind about those of us who are meat eaters. And, you know, the, the body is able to, is very resilient when you're young and you're able to fight off certain infections and so forth because your immunizational system is healthy. But there's a school of thought that claims that as you get older, your intestinal tract becomes more clogged and caked with um, the byproducts of meat and the certain uh, types of oils that you cook with and so forth. Uh, Is that a regimen that you um, concentrate on in terms of cleansing the body and eliminating waste? and? and, Yeah, um, so I, I do do detoxifications. Absolutely, I do. Uh, I usually do them at the change of the season, but typically, like when 
summer's changing to fall or when spring's changing to summer because the weather, I think I do a lot of detoxing where we're eliminating meat and we're just drinking juices uh, or uh, just eating like fruits and vegetables for like 21 days. Um, And so to get to that point about meat and meat eating, I've always thought to myself, like I eat some meat now and um, the type of meat that I eat is more like, um, and I consider meat, I consider fish meat for some reason. I don't, I don't know if people would agree to that, but it's flesh, yes. it's animal flesh, so I just consider it meat. So yes, I it eat, has a mouth and eyes. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it's it's all meat. It's it's fish, yes. but it's all. And so I eat fish, and mm-hmm. um, I sometimes I go to this organic farm, this farm that's near where I live. I live up in Westchester, northern part of Westchester, and there's this farm here that raises cows and sometimes I have sometimes I would have organic beef or something like that once in a month maybe like once a month but I've decided recently since I've been doing more work with in cardiovascular disease that at some point in my life I'm going to probably wind up giving up meat altogether maybe just holding on to fish every once in a while and just doing fruits and vegetables um, at some point in my life you know I think that there's so much evidence that is uh, um you know, and I know that there's the whole paleo people who would probably have uh, an outcry about this, but really, um, if you have someone with like heart disease, the only way that the only way that's ever been proven to reverse heart disease is a plant-based diet. Yes. And so, if you're con- if you are concerned with having a heart attack or stroke, and if you have heart disease, identified heart disease, or hardening of your arteries. Um, plaque in your arteries and there's this whole process that's happening in your arteries where it's like rust on a car it's oxidation to the fat in your arteries the only way to stop that the only way to actually reverse it is a all plant-based diet and you got to be very specific about the plants that you use also so you're also not going to be doing a bunch of grains and not be not be doing a bunch of like um sugary types of of vegetables, but like an all plant-based diet. So if a person has heart disease and they're eating like broccoli, uh, berries, leafy greens, and things like that, you can reverse it. You can't do that if you're going to throw meat in there. Sorry. That's just the way it is, you know. Um, And so, I I mean, fish may be the exception to that because there's good, good fats in there. But if you're eating like even like the organic, the most organic, you know, beef in the world, you know, um, it's not going to do that mm-hmm. in theory. And so um, in my mind, I do think that there are benefits to that type of diet that um, I'm beginning more and more to embrace as I'm going older and I'm, as I'm growing older and I'm getting more concerned about the health of my heart. Mm, absolutely. Yes. Well, as a marathon owner, I can definitely connect with you on that. That's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards long-distance running. Uh, was to repair what needed to be repaired and to enhance the health of my my uh, my heart. And uh, at 71 years of age, I I still feel like I'm in my 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 40s, late 30s, 40s. And you look oh, like it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, if I eliminated the gray hair, I guess I could get by. <laughs> you could you could pass for a thirty year old. Huh? <laughs> I don't know if you want to. The thirties are kind of like a, a, a on the fence time. I think that you probably feel much more confident and secure in yourself when you're, you know, you're older. But anyway, absolutely, absolutely, I agree. I agree. Who wants to be thirty again? You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know they say uh, that seventy is the new fifty. There you go. Fifty is the new thirty. 
So if you're 30, I guess that might be the new 20, you know. <laughs> and who the heck wants to be 20 in their 20s again? Hey, that hey. was a horrible time for me. So. Yeah. Very bad time. Absolutely. Very rough. Extremely rough. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're, we're coming towards the end of the show, and uh, I, I have a, a couple more questions, quick questions for you, and I guess we'll have to delve into uh, further discussion and conversation regarding uh, uh, heart disease which we had uh, on the table. And uh, with your um, uh, indulgence, I'd like to have you come on uh, within the next week or two. Would that be something that we can consider? Absolutely. I, I love to talk about the heart. It's um, one of my new um, uh, things that I'm practicing in my, my, pra- in my, uh, my, uh, my work with my patients. Uh-huh. I'm seeing a lot of people who have uh, cardiovascular disease. So I'm becoming a specialist in heart disease. So, yeah, I want right. to talk about that. Awesome. Great. Well, uh, you becoming a specialist is, is a uh, very uh, much needed uh, service within uh, the African community, people of African descent, if not the overall community at, at, you know, at large. So that's encouraging to hear you say that. I'm really uh, excited about that, doctor. Yeah, me too. Great. Um what is your fee, and also, do you have a sliding scale with regard to your services? I do have a sliding scale, and um, the the first office call fee for a uh, a naturopathic intake depends upon where. Um, I have two offices, so I have one in Peekskill and one in Manhattan. And Manhattan fees are a bit different than um, Peekskill fees because Manhattan fees are much more overhead, mm-hmm. and Manhattan there's much more overhead. So the first office call, which is um, a 90-minute consultation for naturopathic medicine is $200. Follow-ups are 90. For acupuncture, it's 120. I believe follow-ups are 100. Uh, I'm probably the cheapest naturopath in the city, which is, <laughs> you know, I don't say that I don't say that proudly, but I am for reasons because I just try to let people have, you know, access to uh, me. You know, I think that the unfortunate thing about health. And uh, this type of medicine that we practice is that it's usually for the well and the wealthy, mm-hmm. and you rarely see people who are, um, you know, who, the people who really need it. Like, you know, how many people in an inner city do you know that need help, but they can't afford to see a naturopath because most naturopaths in the city are like $400 just to walk in their office, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I do have a sliding scale for that reason, and the sliding scale is based upon what your income is. And so typically it starts out for a first office call um, at a, like 100 and then you can work down from there based upon what you earn. And so, um, you know, I don't really check pay stubs or anything like that, and so I kind of just use let the person use their own discretion when they're, when they're presented a range. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's uh, commendable. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That, that applies to acupuncture also. I would like to just make a comment to the listening audience because we are here to, um, as Baba had said, his show's focus on, you know, the African-American community. And, you know, of course. And I would just like to make a suggestion to the listening audiences. Those of you who have the resources, and there are many of you who do, we're looking to put together some type of foundation, some type of facility where you can donate money solely for the purpose of if someone does go to 
a naturopath such as Dr. Salt for and then not afford to pay. They're not able to afford to pay. The foundation will put the bill for them. We need to start doing those things in our community, people. Absolutely. You know, because many idea. of us do have the resources. Many of us don't. Okay, but when you have when you have um someone that does quality health care, such as a Dr. Saltport, who does not accept insurance, let's get together, people. Let's put together some type of mechanism where those of us who can afford to pay for someone who cannot, let's get together and try to make that happen. You can email us at our website and, uh, you know, let us know if you're interested in doing something like that. It has to happen, everyone. Now is the time. Thank you. I do. Yes. Can I say something about that real quick? Um, so I, I I don't accept insurance because insurance doesn't pay for naturopathic medicine, and I wish that it would. Um, right. That's not on the table at all, right? And so I don't even think that naturopathic medicine in the most states of the country are going to be licensed anytime soon. So, yeah, it's, it's out of pocket. Uh, the other hand is acupuncture. Sometimes your insurance will pay for that, and so I'm willing to explore that with you. Um, you know, if you have some, if you have halfway decent insurance, we can always look into seeing that. If you're, for uh, if your insurance will at least pay for the acupuncture part of it. Great. And we know these things are political. Absolutely. You know why? Why is it that you know that we we know that naturopaths, you know, they they don't accept insurance not because they don't want to, but that that's not what's part of this political arena right now. The right. political as well as the uh, industrial. And, you know, yeah, within yeah. the corporate structure in, in terms of the bottom line. Right, because what would happen if everyone could afford to go to a naturopath? Big Pharma, and I'm getting a little bit political now, but I can't help it, mm -hmm. but Big Pharma would see the big bucks dripping out the door, and they're not going to want that. Okay, right. so I'm, and being that I'm not a medical doctor, like I said, if somebody gets mad at me, I don't care. But I have to let people know we have to educate people as to why things are the way they are and why um, naturopathic assistance is really designed at the elite because, you know, they, they can afford it anyway, so it's not a big deal. But they don't yeah, want it to again, be open it's, to the this is about resources, right? I'm sorry to cut you off, but like, yeah. do they really need it? I mean, if you have access to everything and you, you can have access to the best diet in the world if you want, like, mm -hmm. and, and you're the only one who who can afford a naturopath. Really, the people who who should be seeing us are, are people who, you know, I mean, granted, there are some very sick people in that community too, but I believe that the the, the need is mostly in the, in the people who can afford to see us. And so again, that's that's kind of like this strange paradigm we have going on here with healthcare in this country. Yeah, so we're going to keep educating Bob. Bob's show. We're going to keep educating people. Absolutely. Great. And that was a great comment you make, honey, in terms of the uh, uh, the whole political part and, and the bottom line aspect. It has to happen. Look at, look at our, look at our um, sports. Uh, sports players. Look at our movie stars. Look at—I mean, these people have money that you know. If you—if they want to donate to something, donate to something like this. Mm -hmm. Create a foundation so that when people in our community need assistance from a naturopathic doctor, they don't have to worry about where the money is coming from. Absolutely. I personally can attest to: if you have a major medical condition and you have to worry about being able to afford treatment. 
that just doubles the stress. You're already stressed because you're sick. Right. Now you have to worry about, well, I can't pay for it. I can't get this. I mm-hmm. can't get that. Mm-hmm. Come on. It has to change. And it starts with us, one person at a time. Absolutely. And it's going to change. Yes. Well, um, the last question, uh, statement, actually, is, um, Doctor, do you make house calls? And, you know, I know you're based in Westchester, right, but you have an office in New York City. But do yeah, you, uh, I do make house calls. I'm, I'm in Brooklyn all the time. Okay. <laughs> so, Great. yeah, sure. My, my office is in uh, Manhattan, um, the lower part of Manhattan. I guess they call it the West Village Um but um, I, I do make house calls. I, I do acupuncture visits. Usually I'm, I'm doing stuff on a Sunday in Brooklyn or Wednesdays. So um, absolutely. Great. And how does one get in contact with you and your website and number and so forth? Sure. My website is uh, com. So it's D-R-S-A-L-T-P-A-W.com. My telephone is 917-837-6722. My email is always a good way to reach me. It's uh, drsapa at gmail.com. So it's, again, D-R-S-A-L-T-P-A-W at gmail.com. Great. Thank you so much. And um, it's been a pleasure having you with us again, and we look forward to next Saturday. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Having you on, so we can continue. Uh, that will be next Saturday at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern Time at um, Grassroots Holistic Health Talk Radio. And also, I may add that my website um, is uh, www.drumsofchange.com. That's Drums of Change. And you can contact me at my uh, email address is bobawesleygray at gmail.com. That's B-A-B-A-W-E-S-L-E-Y-G-R-A-Y at gmail.com. And my call-in number is 888-338-2508. That's 888-338-2508. Again, uh, Dr. Chris, uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure having you with us. Uh, Dora and I send our regards and love to your family, and um, we look forward to us getting together again uh, next week. And I as look forward always, to it, too, and thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. We give thanks to all the listeners and those of you who called in and uh, those in the chat room who participated, and I'd just like to thank you all and, and ask you to, to indeed spread the word. In closing, we have a prayer that we like to uh, share with you, and that is through the Most High, dear God. We give this morning to you, and may our minds stay centered on the things of spirit and goodness. May we not be tempted to stray from love. And as we begin uh, this weekend, going into the next week, we open ourselves to receive you, and we ask that you please enter where you already abide. May our minds and hearts be pure and true, and may we not deviate from the things of goodness. And may we see the love and innocence in all mankind behind the masks we all wear and the illusions of this worldly plane. We surrender to you our doings this morning and this weekend, and we ask only that they serve you in the healing of the world, and may we bring your love and goodness with us to give unto others wherever we go. Amen. Thank you.
Lafayette, Salam Alaikum, peace and blessings, love to all.